Good day, everybody. We're back again. This is Atlanta Discuss. Yes, we're always here every week to always turn out the topic that we trust you. We always have extraordinary guests, you know, erudite scholars, people that know what they talk about, and people that are true to power, people that say it the way it is. Because here we just go for the facts. That's what we do at Atlanta Discuss. Today we have our friend, uh, that's David Uday, is here again with us. Award-winning need investigative journalist is here again. And today we're talking about the Nigerian aviation sector, the clear present danger in the Nigerian aviation sector, a tale of neglect and malfeasance. And there's nobody else I know that's done a lot of research in this area. It's written tons and tons of papers on it. David is not new to Atlanta Discuss, and uh, we always bring him here when we want to shed light and discuss on very serious matters that accessibility affects Africa, the South region of the Airports, uh, and of course, Nigeria. So, David, welcome again, once again, to Atlanta Discuss. Thank you for having me. All right. So, let's go for the jugular, like we always do. But I've always said, in fact, we, we try and give a voice to the unheard. We balance the information equation. We search for the facts wherever it leads. So, that's why. And in a lot of cases, we here, our editorial, also have an opinion on most of these issues. So, David, you've written a lot about Nigerian aviation sector, what's been happening and all that. What should we really be worried about? Are we, is it the regulations or the manpower? What should people be worried about? It's clear there's a problem in the industry, but what should we really be worried about? The issue is primarily a regulatory one. Um, wherever there is, um, wherever human beings are in operation, people are always going to try to game the system. People are always going to try to put corners. That's not unique to Nigeria. What is unique to Nigeria is that the regulators, instead of doing their job, which is to regulate the people who are operating in the space and ensure that everyone is, first of all, properly qualified and certified, that's the actual manpower, the, the equipment being deployed is fit for purpose, that the documentation of everything that takes place within civil aviation space is up to scratch. Instead, the regulators are actively collaborating with people who are cutting corners. And this cuts across every conceivable part of the civil aviation um, supply chain, if you like. So starting from, for example, how aviation fuel is sourced. There are NCA regulations that are supposed to guide that there are NCA approved suppliers for aviation fuel, for example. So if you're a civil if you're a civil uh, aviation operator in Nigeria, there are some there are only some specified suppliers you're supposed to patronize who have been audited and certified by the NCA to carry out that that function. But in the name of cutting costs and saving money. You have people like Max Air buying fuel from completely unlicensed, unregistered, unknown sources. So then we ended up with that horrible spectacle we saw a few months ago. That video that emerged with gallons of water being released from a 737 aircraft tank belonging to Max Air, which stems from the fact that the, the supplier that supplied them with aviation fuel is not licensed by the NCA. So they can't even. And it, yeah, I, I I don't know if you read the um, the uh, the audit report that was later published on Nate. They couldn't even explain to the NCA where exactly it is that they sourced this aviation fuel from. So, which only leads me to conclude that even the supplier they use might not even be a formal entity. They might be sourcing things through backdoor 
black channel, black market routes, like we do for everything else in Nigeria. Something similar with the nitrogen gas, because um, that's the that's the um, gas that the aircraft tires are inflated with. They couldn't explain to the NCAA where the supposed nitrogen gas in their storehouses came from. Bear in mind, this is the same airline that as recently as May this year, lost, was it four, no, three uh, tires on, on landing. In a single landing, the tires exploded. So how do you even know that the gas that was inside those tires was actually nitrogen? That somebody did not mix nitrogen with air to save money and then sell it to them at a reduced price and they'll buy it because it's cheaper, right? And the NCAA, instead of cracking down on these things, before the audit report was even released, the NCAA had, uh, had given them clearance to go back into the air, the airspace. They are still flying now as we speak. People are still flying. So, and that's just one tiny space. Let's even leave the commercial operators. Let's go to the so-called private operators. Um, the the uh, permission given to them is something called PNCF, as uh, private uh, non 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 commercial flights. But if you recall the so the, um, the aircraft that had the Minister of Power on board, which crash landed at Ipadan, was in fact carrying paying passengers, including the minister. That aircraft was operating under a PNCF permission, which means it was not supposed to be carrying fair paying passengers. The reason that is so important is because the regulatory burden that is assigned to private operators who are not using it for commercial is completely different to that which is used for commercial operators. In other words, the standard of documentation, the standard of maintenance, the standard of staff qualification, certification, everything is lower when we're dealing with private operators than when we're dealing with commercial operators. So instead of the NCA ensuring that those two things are kept separate so that the airspace remains safe for commercial or for commercial travelers, the NCA instead allows people using that PNCF permission to illegally carry passengers. They do this through the back door. So they basically carry fair pay, fair paying passengers where their operating permission clearly states it's private non-commercial flights because they're trying to save money because they have lower regulatory burdens when they're operating with that PNCF certificates. These are the issues. So um, it's not just the case of the people in the space trying to cut corners. People try to cut corners everywhere across the world. But in Nigeria, the regulators are actively playing ball. The tail is wagging the dog in Nigeria, which is why, as, as I've been saying for a while, the next major civil aviation disaster in Nigeria, it's a matter of when, not if. As long as something Systemic doesn't change. I know that the, the new Minister of Aviation, Professor Skiamo, recently carried out a, a purge, sacked a bunch of people across the space, and supposedly is bringing in a new set of people to replace them. Well, we wait to see who it is that is going to replace them because under the stewardship of Hadi Sirika in particular, the entire aviation space became rotten. So it's not just the people at the top. The NCA as a whole, the FAN, um, the uh, all the bodies that, that are in that space, NIMET, NCAT, all the institutional bodies that are in that space, every, every single one of them seemingly was infected with the Hadi Sirica virus. So um, it might be a case of replacing the, it might be a case of getting rid of the top level and then replacing them with the level just below them, which is just as bad. So we wait and see. But if something systemic and serious is not done, as I said, the next major data F like 992 in Nigeria is just a matter of when, not if. 
that's the issue the regulators are the biggest problem in that space Wow, interesting. That's, uh, that's not uh, that's not palatable to the area. Now, let me quickly add this as a follow-up. You said NIMED, FAN, NCA. Can you share with our listeners, our viewers, what the, these uh, organs of government do? You know? So, um, for example, uh, FAA and that's the Federal Airports Authority of Nigeria, they are the ones who are responsible for maintaining the actual um, airport infrastructure that, oh, okay. that keeps planes safely in the air. In so, for example, place. your air traffic controllers, for example, they they fall, generally speaking, under the purview of the FAAN. So, if you recall an incident a few weeks ago where a plane, uh, I think it was United Nigeria Airlines plane that was flying to Abuja, wound up in Asabara because there was a mistake that was made by the flight dispatcher. Now, under a good regulatory environment, this is something that is never supposed to happen. Right, but because within that space, first of all, there's is even though the, it's supposed to be clearly defined who is regulating what, there's a bit of overhang. So the body that oversees the uh, uh, flight dispatchers, air traffic controllers, there's a specific agency. The name skips my mind now, but the purview of that agency kind of overlaps with that of the FAAN. So they're constantly butting heads because they are all sharing one tiny space. So that, that's already a problem. And there's the NCAA, which is then regulating the airlines and has to interface necessarily with these other two. There's also some botting of heads there. So the NCAA, that's the Nigeria Civil Division Authority. That's supposed to be the most important regulation, the most important regulator in the entire Nigerian aviation space. Because what they do is um, license aircraft and air operators to actually operate in Nigeria. So if you don't have NCAA uh, permission, you can't operate any kind of aircraft in Nigeria. So that's that's what makes NCA the premier uh, regulator in this space. And then you have IMET, which is like the uh, uh, meteorology agency that deals with things like weather reports. These are extremely important in the aviation space because if uh, proper data is not fed to, to pilots, to uh to flight planners flight dispatchers air traffic controllers that on its own can cause a disaster and there are a couple of and obviously there's there's any cut as well i mentioned as the nigerian civil uh, the the i forget the exact acronym but it's if it's a flight training institute basically the only flight training institute in nigeria which is based in in zaria and why it's so important to the space is that the bulk of the pilots and aircraft engineers operating in Nigeria obtain their initial training and certification from NCAT, which means that NCAT has the unique position of the unique situation of being in a position to make or break the entire Nigerian civil aviation space simply by how well it trains and how conscientiously it certifies people who are actually supposedly certified. At NCAT, and also um, things like the the its uh, its intake practices, how how honest is it with um, how it admits people? So under Hadi Serika, there was an issue there, for example, of people who were not qualified gaining admission to NCAT because they come from one village or one town or one state, somewhere in Katsina or something. Something similar was happening in the NCA where you had um, flight safety inspectors. Right, aircraft safety inspectors 
who couldn't, who when questioned, couldn't properly identify certain parts of a plane. And these oh, people wow. also present specters. Right. So, oh, wow. so these are uh, these are the regulators and these are the issues that are bedeviling them. Oh wow. So what does it take to be a pilot in Nigeria? I mean, if you want to fly for a local airline, what's the process if somebody wants to be a pilot? Does it have to go through NCAT or train abroad? Or if you train abroad, you still have to be certified locally. What does it really take? So you know, you don't have to use NCAT, but NCAT is the most um uh, cost effective because if you want to train okay. abroad, that can cost you that can cost you as much as a hundred thousand dollars easily. So it's it's quite it's quite expensive. Um, but regardless of wherever you train, depending on the aircraft you want to fly, you need to obtain something called a type rating. So if you if you want to work for an airline that flies seven three sevens, Boeing seven three sevens, or Airbus A three fifty or whatever, you have to be type rated. For that specific aircraft now the problem in nigeria is that elsewhere when pilots want to get type rated as long as they've, they've obtained their cpl cpl is commercial pilots license as long as they've obtained their cpl the airline will often allow them to the airline will not pay them much but it will allow them to work to um to obtain their type rating and then to to gather hours on that particular aircraft time right in nigeria the air first of all how you obtain your type rating is your own business. The airline is not going to assist you to get your type rating. If the airline does assist you, they will make you sign a bond. I've, I've, I've actually met someone who signed such a bond. I'm not going to mention the name of the airline. It was something like $20,000 for that bond. I think it was bonded for five years. And during the course of that five years, the pay, because this person was actually flying planes with paying passengers on it, but if if I tell you that this person wasn't getting paid up to three hundred thousand naira a month, you might not believe it. Oh, but wow. because you are because you are bonded and because you need the hours, and you've signed a contract, you can't do anything. Because if you leave or if you break your bond, you're not going to work in that space again. So you have to do what you have to do. So it's very 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 difficult to break it, which is why you will often see that, despite <laughs> because of the the sheer difficulty that these airlines have created was how difficult it is to make it from being a trainee pilot to be a, a commercial pilot in Nigeria. You find that there is even a shortage of Nigerian commercial pilots. So there's an oversupply of, of Nigerian pilots with their CPL, their pilot's license, but there's a very drastic shortage of pilots with their correct type ratings and significant amount of experience, the hours. Because they won't, they can't get their type ratings. They can't afford it, and they can't get the hours. And the few opportunities to get a type rating come with ridiculous bonds. So you will see that these airlines now end up hiring foreign crews. So there's there's unemployment in the space. There are pilots who are looking for jobs, but there are foreign crews who are coming in. So it's a very weird and convoluted system that we both go in. Interesting. Only in Nigeria. Yeah. Do let me just do a quick follow-up also. Are there cases of airline owing uh pilot salaries? Multiple I mean, I won't be surprised. Multiple cases. I have been so it, it wasn't something I could add to the story because this was more of anecdotal um accounts from people because usually when I'm publishing something, I I want to see the the receipts. Right, the, I want to see the, the payroll. I want to see evidence of non-payment, but 
for one reason or the other, people are reluctant to volunteer that kind of personal information. They will tell you with their mouths, but because it's just, it's pretty much what one person said, I have to be careful that I don't um, open myself up to potential legal liability by just publishing what somebody said without evidence. But I've been told on multiple occasions that it's a normal thing, especially uh, where we have those operators, those supposed private operators, private, uh, 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 what's it called, non-commercial flight operators who are illegally operating commercial flights. They owe their pilots, like, as a as a matter of ongoing reality, they are still many of them are still in pilots to date. The the few pilots who who are lucky enough to have some sort of steady employment in that space, despite not having a lot of hours and not being senior. I spoke to one a few days ago who is getting paid about two hundred thousand naira a month as a pilot, and she's flying people wow. for a pay, and she's getting paid two hundred thousand naira a month. Right. This she act, this one she actually showed me the bank alerts. So like she's not she's not she's not making it up. Two hundred thousand naira a month as a pilot. I find that incredible. That's amazing. And she's one of the lucky ones. Many of them are, are being old. She was telling me that can you imagine how it feels to be a pilot? This is with the big commercial operators, not even the private ones. So you're a pilot in a seven three seven, one hundred people, one hundred lives in your hands. And you are flying from Lagos to Nigeria, Lagos to Abuja, and you are worrying about how you are going to take care of your responsibilities because you are being old. Imagine having that kind of stress in your mind and you have a hundred lives under your command. Just imagine how that works. So, yes, that happens. That absolutely does happen. That's about $400. <laughs> That's yeah. unbelievable. Less than $200. Less than $200. All right. So, you broke the story about Nigerian hair at the Sirica. I remember when you first broke it, there were a lot of counter, they counter that it's not true, there's not true. The rest is history. You were not just right, you were accurate in point to the letter. Now, for some of those, I mean, everybody has read, a lot of people have read it, not everybody, but for the purpose of what we're doing today, and because the reason why we're doing this is to prevent other aircraft crashes in Nigeria because the more we put shed light on this, the likely would even do then guys not very reactive to such. They're probably just going to make uh, another half or puff about it. But on Adisirika and Nigeria here, I mean Adisirika is no more in government, that's somewhere in Casena, he has bought a little private jet, low protein and all that. What exactly happened in the Nigerian air, Ethiopia Airways saga vis-a-vis Adisirika? Can you just summarize it for us, please? Thank you. So basically, this was a Mr. Aviation who purported to have midwifed a national carrier called Nigeria Air. And on his last day in office, carried out what purported to be an official launch. They published, they printed a program, they did a whole event, so the whole thing. They brought in an aircraft which was emblazoned with the Nigeria Air logo and colors. They did the water cannon salute, they did a tweet saying, at long last, you know, it's been a long road, but Allah has granted us yada, yada, yada. And it turned out that that entire thing, for lack of a better term, was Yahoo. None of it was real. The aircraft which was displayed was actually an Ethiopian Airlines, an active Ethiopian Airlines aircraft, which was wrapped with a logo and presented for the purpose of something called static display. I.e., there's absolutely nothing there. The... Supposed Nigeria Air 
the airline didn't actually exist. Um, for an airline to be to be an airline in Nigeria, you need an air operator certificate. And there are five stages to obtaining an air operator certificate. This airline was still on stage one, which is which is the stage that takes about less than a month to sort out. Each stage takes progressively longer. To get the full five stages can take up to two years to obtain. This airline was still on stage one as of May 26, when he did that, that whole display. So there was no such airline as Nigeria Air. At the time when the display was made, there wasn't even a, there wasn't even a website for Nigeria Air. Shortly after, they hurriedly put together a template website with the placeholder text still there. Lauren Ibsen, don't know, I bet, you know, that was still mm-hmm. visible on the website. So they basically went to WordPress and grabbed the booking website and it wasn't even edited properly to reflect the fact that it's a supposedly a flight booking website those hotel bookings that you were seeing or the so-called fly nigeria air dot world web websites that they already went and smushed together and then um it also turned out later on when i was able to get my hands on the shareholder agreement the management agreement and the operating agreement behind the so-called nigeria air i was able to discover some more details about this thing now this first of all um putting aside the sheer fraud of trying to pass off a non-existent airline as nigeria Air as a national carrier this supposed national carrier if it had ever come into existence would have destroyed the entire local um, airline industry in nigeria it would have gift wrapped the entire industry to the largest airline in africa ethiopian airlines because what was basically said in the contract was that um, if you have the entity known as Nigeria Air, which was um, majority owned, or, or was going to be majority owned by Ethiopian Airlines, um, was basically um, it was the registration in Nigeria was to be done in a free trade zone, meaning that this airline would have been liable for no tax whatsoever. Right. So no, if, if you if you bought a, a, an airline ticket in Nigeria, a local ticket in Nigeria, and you see the breakdown between the actual fare and then taxes and surcharges, you see that taxes can make up as much as 40%, between 8 and 40% of the price of the flight ticket in Nigeria. So any airline which automatically has an 8 to 40% price advantage over its competitors automatically has been set up from day one to become a monopoly automatically because nobody else in the market can compete from day one it's been baked in every other airline in nigeria has to pay eight to forty percent in taxes depending on what ticket it is but this airline which is owned by a foreign entity is going to come in and from day one has been given that that break so it has that immediate price advantage nobody's going to fly any of those other airlines so all those um airpies Arik, aero you know United, Nigeria, Green all of them are basically taken out of the market for the benefit of this one airline. That's already bad enough. Now, the real issue, in my opinion, was the shareholding breakdown, where it turned out that, so in addition to Ethiopian Airlines, which owned, I think, 49%, and the Nigerian government, which owned 5%, the remaining shareholding of the airline shrouded in secrecy. So there's MRS, which supposedly held about 36%. Why exactly MRS is, is holding the shares Nigerian national career is not explained, first of all. And then some undefined group of other investors. And then it's now stated that there's an investor 
that is currently not named but which um the, it has 15 percent of the shares which are currently being held by mrs which will later oh, be wow. transferred to it and this is written in the, the shareholding agreement so basically by reading from that is that Hadi Sirika basically wanted 15% of the airline for himself and his friends and his cronies. But obviously, because he cannot write his name there, because to attract too much attention, they just write an unspecified, you know, this anonymous investor is who at some unspecified date in the future is going to have the shares being held by MRS, 15% transferred to them. This is fraud. And then even more comically, the um the financing agreement so the 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 um i don't know how to call them because they're, they're not a bank but the funding entity that put the deal together um which is run by this um, ethiopian american consultant um zem zem negatsu is an um it's very well known in african uh, funding and financing circles what was specified was that in return for the services rendered as an investment banker, whatever, whatever. This entity, Fairfax Capital Partners, that's the name, they are going to have the right of first refusal. First of all, to determine who, who is awarded, um, what's it called, um, supply contracts for this Nigeria Air, right? So this entity based oh, wow. in London is going to get to determine who gets <laughs> contracts from this new national carrier in Nigeria, right? that in the case of, even before that, that in, in return for brokering this deal, they're going to get paid sort of 3 million US dollars. Right? In return for just brokering the deal. Right, so this is a deal which you can clearly see makes no sense for Nigeria. Nigeria has nothing to gain from this deal. It takes all the Nigerian local airlines out of the market. It's, uh, it's being used as a vehicle for corruption at the expense of Nigerian taxpayer. And then the entity that is brokering now that put all of this together is saying for the benefit of pulling together this corrupt SPV, they're going to pay me $3 million. And later on, I'm going to get a right of first refusal over who, uh, who is appointed as suppliers, you know, contract holders, all of that. And I'm also going to get first refusal over who is appointed into senior management. <laughs> it's just, it's very comical. It's one of the most brazen uh, uh, corruption enterprises that I've never come across in my career, and it was just right there. So I I think that's, that was probably the most disappointing part of it all, that I think Nigeria has got to a point now where both the people in Nigeria and the supposed leaders expect nothing better of each other. So it's like, yeah, like nobody feels the need to hide these things anymore. It's right there. So if they would they like, let him go and shout. Let him go and write a long story about it. Let him do interviews. Let him make noise about it. Nothing will happen. And actually, they've, that has been proven right because nothing has happened. Hadi Serika is still walking around freely. Oh, wow. I understand he has a private jet now. That I mean, maybe one of the proceeds of yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's digress a little bit. Since we're talking about Nigeria corruption and all that, Amy Finney is all over the news. I'm sure you're not surprised. You read a lot about it. It looks to me that it's just a replay of the Dezani, you know, saga of 2015. Blame it on the bellboy, call it not the bad name, just don't hang it, and, and what have you. But what you think is playing out? Because if the likes of Adi Sirika are walking around and everybody's calling him a it looks to me that 
the Balatinbo presidency is scared of moving against the people from the corner, especially the former attorney general who has been, you know, tied to law of fraud, the likes of Sirica, and even Buhari himself, who is clearly enmeshed in all this. What do you what do you view all this? We we see this, so it's as you rightly said, it's the same drama we saw seven years ago. It's more of the same. So I remember when Desiani was being accused of things that were mathematically impossible. She was being accused, for example, of stealing ninety billion, ninety billion dollars, which is mathematically impossible. Nigeria have Nigeria's total annual budget for 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 three years did not uh, did not reach ninety billion dollars. It's mathematically impossible. If there was zero percent budget implementation for three years. And somehow only one person got to put out the entire 100% of Nigeria's federal budget for three years. They couldn't have got to $90 billion. But that's what she was accused of doing. Somehow. Um, we're seeing all these uh, incredible headlines. Um, 200 million pounds worth of jewelry receipts from the Izani's house, which again is also mathematically possible. You know, all sorts of things. So I think it's more of the same. Um, I saw this morning that it was stated that uh, Buhari supposedly wasn't responsible for the Naira redesign policy, but it was his PA, Tunde Sabu, who collaborated <laughs> with the Mephi. You know, so when you start saying things like that, uh, I, I, I think this is one of the tragedies about Nigeria that there's so little respect for the basic intelligence of the public that people just throw out these narratives and it doesn't matter whether it makes sense or it doesn't it doesn't need to make sense just throw it out there whatever after what are they going to do you know the few people who are smart enough to see that this is nonsense what are they going to do and then the vast majority the unwashed hordes if you like the hoi polloi they will either ignore it and continue about their daily business or they will swallow it and believe you and you know that's the that's the mindset behind it so just like it happened seven years ago when um, Jeziani and um, the former NSA, what's his name? Sambo Dasuki, were on the hook for absolutely everything that went wrong during the Good Luck Jonathan era was their fault. Well, Good Luck Jonathan himself was never, the, a hair on his head was not touched. Because obviously, the most important thing there was that he gave them power. So, based on that gentleman's agreement, nobody touched him. But then, supposedly, everybody walked under him. We were getting even to the point where the former DJ of the NBC, NBC of all places. <laughs> it was being called in and out of the FCC custody. Passport was seized. They made the completely rubbish, the poor man who did absolutely nothing to deserve it. And at the end of it all, nothing happened. And after they tried to negotiate with him to try and make him pay them off, even though he didn't do anything, the person who led that effort later ended up, you know, getting unceremoniously removed from office. You know, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. So. At the end of the day, it's like, you know, if we see this drama every for every seven to eight years, so, you know, maybe in another seven years, if we're in another eight years, if we're, if, if, we're, if we still care about Nigeria enough to have this, to have this, a discussion like this again, and maybe we're talking about, I don't know, President Hoshpopi or President Nasir Erufai, <laughs> whatever it is, it will be the same thing again. There you start hearing, you start hearing that Yemika Dosu Abayo Anonuga committed crimes against humanity, but it's not Tinubu that did it. So yeah, this is this is this 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 is what this is just how we do it. It's not vicious. It's a vicious circle. 
Duke's people of Northern origin are treated with kid gloves when it comes to these corruption cases. Because Sambo was never locked in prison. He was just in some confinement somewhere. He wasn't handcuffed and all that. And even though they treated the Zenu with more disrespect and all, do you think people of Northern especially right now, when you have the like of Sirika walking all about, Malami walking freely, even the nephew of the Bwari they are talking about as a deputy director position in the NIA, do you think Northerners are treated differently? Oh, yeah. And it's all, this is that's a material reality. That's not a statement of opinion. The material reality is that the assumption is that due to due to the assumed political homo homogeneousness of the northern part of Nigeria, that there is, um, that it's, it's a political demerit to visually and vocally go against one of their own. And by the way, people have the politicians from that area are very well aware of this and they lean into it very heavily. So I mentioned Addis Erika. If you go to Addis Erika's Twitter page right now, Every tweet, every pretty much every tweet you see is an answer. And 90% of the tweets are talking about Allah this, Allah that, you know, peace be unto the prophet, yada, yada, yada. It's very clear what, what he's trying to do. You know, a few months after, you know, overseeing one of the most ridiculous and embarrassing public sector scams that has ever happened in Nigeria's history. I mean, this was right up there with um, the one who tried to sell Lagos Airports to a Brazilian bank for two hundred forty-two million dollars, right? This was right mm -hmm. up there. With that. In fact, in terms of in terms of the amount of money that potentially went into this, which could potentially be even more than that, potentially the size of the scam. And after you know a few months after that, less than six months after that, he's on Twitter doing <laughs> having Quranic debates, you know, and discussions about Islamic theology, knowing fully well that. He's leaning into that idea that such things make him untouchable. That by being perceived as their son or one of them, you know, a Muslim northerner, that gives him a certain privilege. That's exactly what he's trying to do. So it's not a coincidence. The, the day after the news emerged that he has been summoned by the House of Reps, next thing, you start seeing headlines. Addis Erika claims that, uh, that uh, Al-Majiri is, is, is un-Islamic. All of a sudden, Hadith Sirika has become a, a Quranic theologist on social media. He knows why he's doing that. And, and he knows that, and that's not an organic headline, right? Because that's not a new story. That's a that's a planted story. Somebody paid for that to be a headline. So who paid for it and why? Right? So like there's a game being played, and it's the same, like this Jedi mind trick has been played hundreds of times before. So it is what it is, unfortunately. So sad, so sad. Well, uh, I want to put this to you. You've done a lot, I mean, in the last two, three years on Project Nigeria, a project that's obviously almost, I would say battered beyond repairs, but I would say almost battered beyond repairs. And um, it's clear that the executive have hijacked the legislature, and now even the judiciary have been hijacked. And yesterday we saw the judgment in the the, the Supreme Court judgment of the Enugu gubernatorial election, where clearly the incumbent governor submitted a forged NYC certificate and the Supreme Court overlooked that, said it was not proven, despite the fact that there are written letters from the NYC, even the NYC Director General spoke in public to that effect. Now, my question is this. 
In Kano, they are scared to give a judgment, maybe because of the Concassia people they know. And one of the top Islamic cleric has written, you know, to the chief judge that if they try anything funny in Kano, that it, it will be the end of Nigeria. So, my do you think some semblance of docility on the part of Nigeria is one of the reasons why the judiciary is doing what it's doing. Because I had an interview two weeks ago, uh, uh, a three-series interview, uh, Kolaf State, Fail State, Weak State, Nigeria as a focal point, causes and indicator. And I was talking to Chidi Odinkalo, and in reference 1983 election, he said, the gubernatorial election in Undo that they wanted to re the people made it clear that they will not take it. But in the case of Anambra, Jimu Oboda, Sisi Ono, the Anambra people did not show any semblance of uh, you know, re rejection or rebel, rebel, re rebellion, just like in Enugu today. Does, does the docility on the part of Nigeria, is it responsible for what is happening? Oh, let me put it this way. Is the abdication of the office of the citizen part of the problems we have? Yep, I I usually um, try to avoid um, okay. sort of criticizing the Nigerian people and mm. sort of letting the leadership off the hook. But in this instance, you would have to say that one of the principal, um, one, one of the foundational principles of democracy is that people make their voices heard. There is this idea in Nigeria that the word democracy is somehow analogous to the word election. So it's only during elections that there is democracy. So democracy means voting. No, because democracy is a whole gamut of actions, including voting. So whether or not Nigeria is functionally a democracy in the real sense of it, as long as Nigeria claims to be a democracy, as long as Nigeria has the institutions and paraphernalia and form, of a democratic electoral of an electoral democracy, then what that means is that the levers through which people engage with a democracy are still there. Whether they work or not is a different conversation. But the point is those levers are there. Uh -huh. Right. So for for it to be established that these these things don't work, people have to engage with them in the first place. Are the people doing that? No, they're not. Doing that doesn't necessarily even mean coming out onto the streets. Put your hand in the sky and saying we know go grill, don't go grill. It could be as simple as you know, um concerted demanding for answers, even on the internet. Even if you say you don't want to go out because you're afraid. That internet that you have, the ability to speak out that you have from social media, are people using it you know to the fullest extent possible? It has been my experience that people seem to think that demanding for accountability from their leadership is the job of a specific group of people. Whether you call them activists, whether I call them journalists, whether I call them civil society, people uh, advocate, you know, people who are involved in advocacy, whatever it is, there's the general perception that it's those people's job to put the feet of the government to the fire. It's not those people's job, it's everybody's job. As long as you are a citizen of a country, even if you are not even physically located there, but just for the fact of being a citizen of a country, you you are supposed to be one of those people. You are supposed to hold your government accountable, right? If your government then says that okay, we're not this democracy thing, we're not doing anymore, so everybody shut up, pointing a gun at you, we're, we're not we're, 
we're removing this Agbada without wearing military fatigues. Then we're having a different conversation. Then everybody can understand. But as long as the people who are in office are still telling you that this is a democracy, whether it's actually democracy or not, as long as they have they feel the need to even pretend that it's a democracy, that means that the people still have the opportunity and the duty to make their voices heard. Are they doing this? I don't believe they are. I think after the election or what we call that election in Nigeria, I think the 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 over the overriding um sense that I'm getting on the public space now is well, you know, we did our best. It's over okay now, so let's just, you know, whatever. Whether you know whether this person is president or that person is not president, individually we will survive. Individually, I will survive. I will I will me and my family will thrive regardless. And I I just think that's a that's a very destructive idea. That's very because yes, individually many people will survive, but also many people will not survive. But because of the I don't know, there's a there's a term for it. I think it's called um, it's called survivorship bias. So if you are one of the if you are one of those who survived, worry, I think the impression you have you then have got is that well, I survived eight years of an absolute moron. I can survive eight years of a criminal. You know, regardless of what happens, I will survive. But the point is that the people who didn't survive, you're not better than them. And there will always come a time that Nigeria will happen to you, regardless of how good you think you are at surviving. That's what Nigeria is. So Right now, I, I I just get the sense that people are people are absolutely not really ready to actually act like they live in a democracy. People think that democracy is something that happens every four years. Meanwhile, democracy is an ongoing, never-ending struggle to enthrone and to maintain. So you know, they are not making use of their power. They're really not. Oh wow! Okay. All right. So. Together, we've done about two or three series on ECOWAS, usually with Nijay, one with title ECOWAS Grandstanding, the, the fiasco. We both saw it coming. We analyzed it from the beginning. Why ECOWAS should never invade Nijay Republic for very obvious reasons. We gave numerous reasons and why Nigeria did not react properly and all that. Well, the rest is history. We're both vindicated based on the facts to be we postulated and so on and so forth. But Yesterday, we read that the French government have officially closed down its embassy in Niamey, that there's no business to conduct anymore, that he made the junta is making things difficult. And it was also reported that the last set of soldiers, French soldiers in Niger, will be leaving that yesterday. So, I mean, is that unexpected? Well, I mean, we did see that come. We knew France would lose some mileage there, but to close its embassy, did you see that coming? Um, I think it's actually it's actually kind of long overdue. Mm. Um, I I definitely did see that coming <laughs> because the Nigerian regime has basically telegraphed how it feels about having any kind of French involvement or interaction in in its. In its administration, they've first of all, French is no longer officially recognized as the country's official language. So French is now used as a word, something called a working language, but officially the country's language is no longer French. That's very wow. significant because like many people don't realize that the um the group of um 
what's it called, um, bilateral agreements that make up this thing called France-Afrique. One of the mm. key things in the France-Afrique agreement, there, I think there is a list of about 22 things. One of the key things is that the official language of these countries must be French. Mm. And not just that it must be French, like even the, you know how, um, so the official language of Nigeria is English, the official language of Ghana is English, but the, if you like, the dialect of English we speak in Nigeria or in Ghana or in Jamaica is not necessarily the same as the one they speak in the UK. We have our own sort of independent ways of evolving our language, which is normal human um, human sociology. Human, human languages evolve independently, regardless of which we started off the same way. Under the France-Africa agreements, even the way French is taught is directly regulated by the French Ministry of Education. So the idea is to tightly maintain not just an economic hold on these countries, but even a psychological hold on them using something as fundamental as language. So that act of removing French as the country's official language is a lot more significant than many people gave it credit for. It's not just a, you know, it's not just someone throwing a tantrum or something. It signifies that there's a much deeper purging of French influence from the heart of the Nigerian state that many were aware of. What, many, what, you, what you may or may not also know is that a few weeks ago, um, a guy called Kemi Seba was welcomed to Nigeria. He delivered this huge, rousing speech in Nigeria to, you know, this was when, shortly before the, the, French, the French forces commenced their exit from the country, when they were still holding these huge rallies outside the French embassy. Kemi Seba, well, I, I think you have to explain who he is first. So he's, a, he's like a Pan-Africanist activist. He's, a, he's, from, he's from Benin originally, but he is now known more as a Francophone Pan-Africanist. And his entire thing is that French influence in West Africa, in Western Central Africa is malign and that French influence must be rooted out, must be kicked out. Kemi Seba is des- in France is not persona non grata. He's not welcome in France. He's designated there as an enemy of state. He has been arrested both in France and in West Africa multiple times. His own home country, oh, wow. Benin. Yeah, his own home country, Benin, which obviously has a very close relationship with France. He's not welcome in Benin. So he's more, he's like, almost like a stateless person. He's a dissident. And basically, he's someone who, if you host Kemi Seba, like if you personally host Kemi Seba on this channel, someone in the DGSC probably will put you on a list. That you have you have officially become the enemy of France. That's how Kemi Seba is viewed in the French government and security establishment. So for the Nigerian authorities to bring this person, because they flew him in. Oh wow. For them to fly such a person in and roll out the red carpet for him. He had a meeting with General Chiani, the president himself. Wow. So that is very significant of how the Nigerians are thinking about France. So the French closing their embassy, I think, is in, in that context is to be expected. And there's going to be more, even more significant things that will take place. I think now that it's the end of the year, I think the the exits of Nigerian or French troops from Niger should have concluded by now. Because mm. they said it was going to take three months, and by the end of the year, they would all have left. I think we should just about have reached that threshold now. Um, there are going to be more development, not just in Niger, but also in Mali and in Burkina Faso. So there's talk about them creating some kind of supranational uh, supranational union to replace the current one that exists within that part of Francophone Africa. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. 
Okay, final question. Uh, I mean, I think I have two more, but the FBI files that have been coming out on Bellatino, but we've received two already. Are we still to expect that the last one this this month, the last day of this month? Uh, yeah, we should. Um, all things being equal, I think they said this. This is not the last one. This is the third one. So there are five tranches of documents. Oh wow, five tranches. So we have till February. February. Yeah, so it's just two thousand five hundred pages that were being. Oh, wow. So here's uh, there's actually a, a bit of a story behind that. So as I'm sure if you read, if you read the joint status report, which was published in September, they said mm -hmm. that they were going to release two thousand five hundred pages at the rate of five hundred pages a month. Now, shortly after Tinubu's lawyers got involved, there's some sort of hyper diplomatic, you know, whatever going on, you know, that has happened in the background. All of a sudden, the FBI's lawyer, a guy called Jared Dittman, who is what he's working for the um, the the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? So he's I mean, he's the lawyer, he's the lawyer, he's the lawyer representing all for all six government agencies that we sued, and he comes back and says, "Well, we never sent." that we would actually release 500 pages, that we said we would review 500 pages per month. So what he was basically saying was, yes, we, um, even though it looks like we said we would release 500 pages and we only released 217 or 200 and something, and the rest are redacted, well, that's not us going back on our word. That's all, you know, his lawyers do these things where he's basically telling a lie, but he's saying this in a way that you can't really, you can't really hold into it. Mm -hmm. So he's legally telling me lie, like because that was not what was stated in the jury status report. That's not what was said at all. But there's a there's an argument to be made. So it's a disingenuous argument, but it's an argument nonetheless. So clearly, there is a lot of stuff that they do not want the public to see in those files. So after so we have um, three more tranches to go, we received two already. As far as I'm concerned, even with just that first tranche already, I think. If we didn't, whatever it is that we didn't know before, we already know now. Just that first tranche, it tells everything we need to know because you have a tranche of documents on the cover letter of those documents. It says Bola Tinobu et al. And what is in those documents? The whole thing is about a drug, the investigation into a drug ring and a drug case. That's it. There's literally nothing else. That's all it is. Drug, 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 narcotics, drug trafficking, heroin, cocaine. That's all that is in there. So what's Bola Tinobu's name doing there? So even, you know, regardless of how much reduction you do or you don't do, by implication, you've already indicted the man. And then, worse still, when I pointed out publicly that, hey, look, these people printed this man's name on that cover letter. So all this reduction they think they did, they've still <laughs> implicated this man. The, the second batch of documents, the second batch of documents, they now went and changed that name on the, mm. over, the covering documents. So instead of Bolatin Boy et al., he now says Lee Edwards et al. So Lee Edwards is a guy who was actually, who was actually, um, like he was the point man in the case, the one the one who shot at two federal officers. So he's the one who died in prison. So yes, theoretically, it's correct to say Lee Edwards et al. Because Lee Edwards was, was involved in the case. But why did they change it? You understand? So someone is being funny here. Someone is being, you know, but I guess... One of my big lessons from 2023 was that the so-called developed countries, the so-called policemen of the world, so-called um, 800-pound gorillas who get to determine what is right and what isn't right, 
those people are actually just as corrupt. It's just that they have a much, they have a much, um, a much more nuanced understanding of how to leverage corruption and how to deal with the world than than we do. But I mean, if you are willing to strike a deal with them and it's in their, they consider it to be in their strategic interest, it doesn't matter whether you're someone who eats babies; they work with you. Interesting. So, yeah, my final question to you, I've been asked, you have a lot of uh, followers on uh, a lot of people ask, where is David, what's David up to, and all that. Can please tell our viewers what you've been up to? I know you, you've not hidden it on data, your project, diversification, you brought in more partners, ownership in West Africa Weekly, new book, and all that. So, you know, what please tell our viewers what you've been up to in the last few weeks or months? So first of all, I uh, I've sold my majority stake in West Africa originally. So obviously, I used to own hundred percent of the company because I I founded it. Now I own less than thirty percent of the company. Um, so there's a there's a new management team. You might have noticed there's a new website. So we're not actually migrating it away from Substack. So there's a website now, WestAfricaRookie.com, and in addition to the monthly long reads that I've been doing and that I will keep on doing. Um, they're now sort of more regular short form news stories, which they've brought on. So I think at last count, we have six full-time reporters currently working in our newsroom. The, there's also a plan to expand into the audiovisual side of things, because I think the few documentaries that I, that I created are also very successful. So that's the plan. The plan for 2024 is for East Africa to become a fully integrated media platform that is both online and audiovisual, which doesn't need me for it to run. Because I think that has been a problem for the past couple of years, that it has been a David and Dane thing. Now it's no longer that. Now there's a board, there's a managing editor, there are reporters, there are video editors, there are graphic designers. Wow. So it's completely independent of me. So that's the one, that, that's one thing. Obviously, um, I myself, I have a, have a bunch of other things projects that I'm working on. My new book comes out in on January 25. It's called Breaking Point, A Journalist's Quest for Salvation in Nigeria's Chaos. Um, and I highly recommend that book. When it comes out, you'll know why. <laughs> so unlike, unlike my last book, my last book, The Jungle, was basically an anthology of some of my big, some of my most important stories. This book is more than that. Because this book includes things that nobody has seen before. It includes stories that, ha that I haven't published anywhere else oh, wow. and and it includes my own personal story over the past three to four years including some very 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 personal things which i guarantee nobody is aware of so for example um the fact that i got married a second time and divorced a second time um that uh, that is not in the public domain but i put everything oh, wow. out there put everything out there um because i think it's time to move on um, both in in a personal and in a professional sense, I'm in a bit of a transitionary period, which is why you may not be hearing from very often nowadays. I'm taking a bit of a sabbatical. Um, I don't spend as much time online as I used to. I'm focusing a lot on sort of my offline work because I've, throughout through all of this, I've always had a day job. So I'm kind of focusing on that a bit more now. I'm focusing a bit more on personal relationships, family. Um, I lost my big sister two months ago. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm spending, trying to spend more time 
my family because I'm realizing that no matter which work you are doing, no matter how important what you are doing is, if the, if you lose people who are important to you, they are not coming back. Like once they're dead, they're dead. So enjoy them while you have them, basically. So I'm basically taking a bit of time out to look after myself. And then after that, we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens next. But West Africa will keep, we'll keep on running. Every once in a while, I will st- still keep on doing those long read stories, you know, mm-hmm. that have that impact that people love. And yeah, we'll see how it goes. Well, fantastic. Thank you, David Oday. We at Atlanta Discuss, we wish you all the best. So you are, you are our friend and we'll continue to be your friend. We'll support you in any way possible. And uh, we might have some announcement before the end of the year on other things that have to do with you. But we appreciate your support always. Like I said, you're a patriot. There's nothing anybody can do about that. You have served Nigeria at a very young age. And I'm sure in the immediate or the extended future, Nigeria will always be in need of you. So, and to our viewers, yes, it's a wrap. We have finished with this topic, clear and present danger in the Nigerian aviation industry. David has broken it down. It's not a matter of if, but when, but do we really want it to happen? These things can be averted. A tale of neglect and malfeasance, you know, in the Nigerian aviation industry. Everybody that's passed through the international airports in Nigeria, incoming, outgoing, knows the story, you know. Flying locally also, it's always a sorry state. A plane taking off from Lagos due to landing Abuja, flying to Asaba, it's, it's just not right in 2023. So that is the story of Nigeria. Battered almost beyond repair. Only God knows what will come out of the country. We'll do our best to see, to always add our voice to prevent the inevitable. But one thing is clear, the Office of the Citizen have to be properly activated. David has said it, a lot of our guests have said it. The citizens' office has been abdicated and you just have to stand up. It's not just always about election. Once again, David, thank you for coming to our show today. We wish you all the best in all your endeavors and we'll continue to put you in our prayers. And most especially, we'll pray that your social soul rests in perfect faith. So it's a wrap. I remain your moderator, Adibalogo. And next week, we'll come again with another very juicy and interesting topic. Take care and God bless you all.